the financial dads are not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, tax or other advice in or by virtue of this podcast. Hello, welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast. This podcast is for all the moms and dads out there who struggle with life's topics, especially related to family and finances. Now, here's my dad, Paul Fagan. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast. Today, we welcome Chris Miles. Chris is a cash flow expert and anti-financial advisor who is a leading authority teaching entrepreneurs and professionals how to get their money working for them today. Chris has used his knowledge not once but twice to become financially independent, where his passive income exceeded his expenses, not to mention paid off his $1 million in debt after the last recession without filing bankruptcy. He has been featured in U.S. News, CNN Money, Entrepreneurs on Fire, Bigger Pockets, and has a proven reputation with his company, Money Ripples, getting his clients fast financial results. In fact, his personal clients have increased their cash flow by almost $300 million in the last 12 years. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, so happy to be here, Paul. Yeah, this is great. You know, I was, we we were talking a little bit ahead of the show. (laughs) And as I'm reading through um, the the bio, it just dawned on me, before we jump into anything, what do you mean by anti-financial advice? We're going to get into the rest of the questions, but that one caught me. I'd love to hear with just a minute or two, what do you mean by anti-financial advisor? Because when I read it, I said, hmm, I think that's the first question I have to ask. Well, you know, I mean, every financial advisor you've, you've seen really is just a salesperson in a suit, right? I mean, they really, as good-hearted as they are, they're ultimately just selling you the same old crap as everybody else, which is mutual funds and insurances. That's pretty much all they do, you know? And so I'm against that. I'm kind of against the grain in the sense that I have people more take an alternate route that actually has been proven to work where the mainstream route, which is saving your money in mutual funds, has not worked. Got it. Got it. Got it. Very cool. So we're going to get into all this when we go into the show here. But Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey. Yeah. So, you know, I was you know raised in Oregon. You know, I was, I was raised just by good, hardworking parents. You know, my mom was a professional oil painter. Have you ever, have you ever seen uh, Bob Ross do his paintings and stuff? She was trained by the same master painter that trained Bob Ross. And so oh, she did a very similar style of, of artwork, um, believed that she'd be the starving artist, right, in her life. My dad, he worked for the man, you know, and uh, thought he'd work a job for 40 years. And then when he'd get laid off from time to time, he'd be starting all over again, or they'd change things on him and make his life hard. So, when, you know, all they taught me hard work and really good values, the one thing they didn't really could, they really couldn't teach me well was about money, right? Uh, it was very much scarcity driven. You know, it was always like, hey, we can't afford this. What do you think I am? Made of money? Money doesn't grow on trees, you know? And even worse, my dad would even say, my job will kill me. I'm going to work until I'm dead. And I thought, of course, as any kid does, I don't want to be like my parents, especially for that. I don't want to work until I'm dead. I want a different life. So when I went out on my own, I was the first one to go to college in the family. And I thought, I'm going to make a new life for me. But I didn't want the traditional route of just being a non- of like a normal employee. And so I started to go more into, you know, really into business consulting was the route I was going to take. So I was just barely shy of getting my bachelor's. And then I thought, you know, if I'm going to become a business consultant, shouldn't I have real life business experience? So I dropped out of college before I went to go get my MBA. And uh, I started looking for whatever business I could start. I didn't know what to do. And the first one that came up was actually becoming a financial advisor, like the mainstream salesman in a suit financial advisor. And so I did that. I actually never went back to college again. I stayed dropped out and I was doing that. And and about a few years in, ironically enough, my dad said, hey, why don't you advise me on money? So even though he was the one always giving me financial advice of save everything, pay off your debt, you know, all that kind of stuff. Now he was saying, why don't you come help me? So I remember sitting down with him and uh, he, he said, okay, Chris, I'm 61 years old. I want to retire now. Now understand that he did everything right. I mean, he would be like Dave Ramsey's older brother that he looked up to, right? Mm. I mean, this guy, he saved everything, stuffed his 401k. He was, he paid off his debt early, including his house. He was very proud of that. He says, all right, Chris, can I retire? And I looked at his money and I said, dad, I'm going to be honest with you. Once you retire, you're better hope you die in five years because that's Mm. how much money you have left. Even though you did everything right, um, it's not enough. Okay, Chris, that's not what I wanted to hear. What do I do? I said, I don't know. 
because you did everything a financial advisor would tell you to do. And, uh, and I, and I said, well, there's this product or that product, but I said, but it's market driven. It's stock market driven. I can't guarantee the market won't change directions right before he tries to retire. Otherwise his long haul is going to become longer of a haul. Right. And so I was lost. I didn't know what to do. And so we left kind of with no real plan in place because the plan he was on was supposed to be the perfect plan and it, it failed. And then I started looking at my own clients and I realized as I looked at my clients, even the retired physicians, the doctors, even they were, were worried about running out of money. It hadn't quite worked for them either. And then I looked at financial advisors because I remember I had a friend that was in real estate investing asked me, he said, Chris, how many of you guys, how many of your, your, you know, you guys as financial advisors are financially free, not off the commissions you're earning or the fees under management, but actually from doing the investments you've been recommending. And as I thought about it, I said, well, I know guys have been working there since the late 1970s. So I think the answer would be zero. Hmm. Well, good job, Chris. Way to help nobody. You know, <laughs> great. I was like, okay, well, what do I do? How do I make this work? So um, for a little while, you know, when the student's ready, the teacher appears, I started connecting with people that were in real estate investing, people that actually were financially free, some of them even as young as their 20s and 30s. I said, okay, well, they got to be doing something right because, you know, success leaves clues, as Tony Robbins would say. Well, success was definitely not shown in the financial advisor arena because none of their clients were really financially free. Nobody was. And so I went that route. Uh, eventually, I quit being a financial advisor because I, once, I I, once I saw the light, I realized it was a bunch of crap. It doesn't work. So I started doing that. And uh, later that year, I actually became financially independent myself. I was 28, almost 29 years old, had enough passive income coming in that I didn't have to work a job anymore or even work as a financial advisor. And, uh, and that's, and that's kind of what blew up my life. I, I didn't expect it. I didn't expect it to happen that quickly. And uh, as a result, you know, later, you know, 2007 came out of retirement to teach people how to do the same thing. And, uh, and that's kind of, you know, what I'm doing today is really teaching people how to become work optional, how they can work because they want to, not because they have to, by having enough passive income coming in so that they have the choice to work or not. You know what? I, I, I was writing down a lot of things, but the last thing you just said, work optional. Never yeah. heard that term before, but that's such a great clarifying term, right? To have that freedom to make work optional. I love yeah. that. And and your dad's path really sounds like my current path, I have to say. Right. So, like so yes, people, I, I, right? most people, you know, um, and that's why I love doing the show. I, and I we've you know, we have a whole host of different financial people on the show with different products. And I, I love this. I guess sometimes I've heard it, you know, real estate is part of an alternative investing, although I know that's it really should be on its own. This whole thing around around retirement, um, not retirement around real estate. Um, the other thing that you mentioned was, uh, which, which kind of resonated with me, is a lot of people take that path and they hope at the end that they can retire like your dad, right? And you mm -hmm. said, oh, I got bad news. It's five years. And I once had a manager, a pretty ornery manager that told me once, you know, Paul, hope is not a plan, right? So you really need a plan to kind of really drive everything forward. So uh, but yeah, it, it's, it sounds fascinating. That's why I want to really dig into this. And maybe you could tell us, maybe we'll kind of jump into the top, what you talk about money ripples and what mm -hmm. is that all about? Can you tell us a little bit? I'm, I'm assuming that ties all back to the way your investment style and strategy around how you would build wealth. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, money, money ripples is really, it's like, if you've ever read the book, rich dad, poor dad, which I'm sure has been mentioned on the show from time to time. Yes. Yes. You know? The one thing that people hate about rich dad, poor dad is that you get all these great concepts and, a, and it opens your mind, which is good because it, it teaches a lot of good principles in that book. But then everybody always complains saying, yeah, but how do I do it? And that's what we do. We're really rich dad, poor dad applied. How do you actually get the rubber to meet the road, right? How do you actually get this to act, to really work? Uh, so when we work, when we do consulting with our clients, like we are actually stepping in as like you know, anti-financial advisors. We don't work as financial advisors or investment advisor or anything like that. We don't give investment recommendations. But what we do do is we actually help create really a strategy, right? Help figure out like, where do we find the money to invest in the first place? How do we free up that cash and get it to work for us to start getting us passive income? And then of course, connect them with those deals. Like what are some of those deals that have been, you know, vetted? Doesn't mean it's, you know, 
risk, you know, risk-free guaranteed, nothing like that. It's not that at all, but really like giving you the best opportunity, the best chance to be able to say, let's strategize and then connect you with those right sources, those strategies to help you hit your financial goals. Um, that's really what Money Ripples is all about. It's about creating that freedom and prosperity today. Whereas uh, you, you may not be able to see that sign back there. It says, live your life now, not tomorrow. It's like, how do you create that life? Because everybody is always planned to age 65, right? Well, mm -hmm. we don't know if we're going to be alive to age 65. I just, in the last month, had two friends. Uh, one was 20 days younger than me. He's 45. And then the other one was 38, pass away. They both passed away. They, if they would have delayed their life to being someday, to being after retirement, it, 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 they never would have made it. You know? and, and I'm not saying that you know, the majority of us will probably live that long, if not longer, of course. But it's really about, you don't want to have this whole cats in the cradle thing with your family, right? You don't want to be the person that says, I'm just going to work hard, put my head down, you know, my blinders on like some sort of workhorse, and then just hope it all works out. And then you miss your kids growing up. You know, you end up missing out on even some of your grandkids growing up, right? You miss out on that. And then you're singing cats in the cradle, not just about your children, but you're singing about your grandchildren next, you know? And that's just not the life you should live. You should be able to have that life now with your family while they still want to be around you before they start going out on their own and doing their own things. No, that's all great. That's all great perspective. The two things that jumped out at me, and maybe I'll ask these questions from a, from a naysayer perspective, right? Or someone who's without hope, right? So the two questions I think that they would ask is, geez, I don't have a lot of money. How would I get started in this? And then the second question would be, hey, you know, this real estate market is so inflated. I, I think I missed the boat on any opportunity to make any real money in real estate. Um, so, you know, uh, that's from my head, just asking for a friend. Uh, but, but those are kind of the, maybe anecdotally, those are the two questions. But no, like that's that's what kind of comes to mind, right? I think that's where people will think about that. So can you take those two questions and kind of answer them separately as, you know, first kind of like, how do I get started if you don't really have a lot of money? And then the second one is the market, overcooked at this point and, you, and, you, and there's no deals, you know, how can you still find deals in this market? Or am I jumping I mean, I ahead? Expecting, Maybe we can. I was expecting harder questions when you said naysayer, but these are great. No, these are, these are awesome. Um, yeah, let's address both of them because they're both good questions. And I, I'm, I, we hear them a lot too. One, if you just feel like either one, you don't have any money, you're just starting out. Like I actually just had a guy reach out um, to us through our website, through moneyripples.com. He's like, I'm 40 years old, recently divorced pretty much lost my house, gave it to my ex-wife and I, I'm starting over again. And he's a business owner, but he's starting from scratch. Uh, good news is, is that first and foremost, um, I get it. I'm probably the one financial guy that won't judge you because most financial people, they make it seem like they're high and mighty. They're the gurus. Um, you know, everything's been bright, shiny, you know, and happy people holding hands and all that kind of crap. But the truth is like, I was over a million dollars in debt at one point. In fact, even in the last recession. So even after I became financially independent, the market reversed. And not to mention, I started a brand new business with some partners. Uh, perfect storm happened and I went over a million dollars in debt. And uh, I did not file for bankruptcy, but man, it would have been easier if I did. I'll tell you that much. I had a very similar experience even to like what Dave Ramsey had, you know, cause I had real estate, I had businesses going on, not exactly the same, but I came out of it with a different perspective. And uh, so, just understand, I was over a million dollars in debt. I was a million dollars more poor than the homeless guy on the street, <laughs> okay? Um, so I know what it's like, and I was able to become financially independent the second time in 2016. So how I did that, I actually explained that a little bit. On, there's a free ebook I have on, on moneyripples.com you can get called Beyond Rice and Beans, Seven Secrets ah. to Free Up Cash Today. <laughs> so a little, little, little ode to our, our good old friend Dave Ramsey, right? Because um, a lot of times people think they just got to live on rice and beans. That's not true. You don't mm. have to live in a cardboard box to make this work. There are ways to find it free up cash. That book actually came from all the crap I had to go through and how I had to dig out of that hole. Um, things like tracking your money, you know, just starting to track it, you know, how much is coming in, how much is going out. How can you start increasing your income? What can you do to create value for people and serve people and solve problems in a way that money is just a natural byproduct? You know, how can you be a wise steward of the money you're given? Even debt. Uh, I have a formula in there I talk about called a cash flow index that pays off debt differently than what you might hear when people talk about snowballing the method with, you know, interest rates or with credit cards versus car loans. Um, there's a very different way of going about it that can actually free up cash flow faster, getting you in a healthier financial position much better in a much better way. Um, 
So there's things like that, ways to save on taxes, although tax laws can change, of course, but you know, all these kind of things that you can do to free up money. Um, that's the first thing is really learn how to become a wise steward of your resources that you have. Secondly, of course, income is limitless. While expenses you can only cut down so far, income is limitless. Uh, like I said, focus on how can you go about creating value, whether it's a job, whether you're a business owner, whatever it is, how do you create value? How do you serve people and solve problems in such a way that money comes back naturally? Because people, what you got to really do is make yourself valuable, right? You got to find a way to say, how do I serve people in such a way that they know that their life is better because I'm in it? And that's true. Even if you're an employee, I don't care if you're working at a restaurant, right? And you're, you're waiting tables or you're behind the scenes. It doesn't matter. If you show up to serve, those opportunities will show up. It may not be at that place that you're working at right now, but something else will come along that's better that someone will take you if you own that position that you're in and work hard in a way. You don't have to work long hours, but work in a way that's smart. Uh, let me give you a real life example of this because I had a client that was kind of in the situation where he was about 40 years old, um, had a little bit of money they're saving, but it was like a couple hundred bucks a month. It wasn't enough to make a dent really. And, uh, and so we, after we kind of exhausted some of the things we did, we freed up, got about a thousand bucks a month for him. But after that, it was like, okay, now what? And I said, well, now you're on the other half of the equation, income. And, uh, and he said, well, there is an opportunity. He worked for a very well-known bank. He said, there is an opportunity for a promotion, um, but it's really hard to get. It's very competitive. I said, great. Well, what do you have to do to get it? I don't know. Uh, just everybody's going to be applying for it. I said, here's what you do. And this is something everybody should write down. Go to that manager or that boss or whoever, whoever it is and ask them, what can I do to merit a raise? What can I do to actually would merit me a raise? You know, or in his case, what can I do to actually would get me this position? And those guys came back and said, well, if you sell more of this and, and this, then uh, that will give you a lot better odds of success. And so the guy said, yep, I have till the end of the month to do it. I said, you, I don't care if you take an extra hour a day, like do whatever you need to do to do exactly what they said. Do that. So he did. Guess what? Flash forward, over 100 applicants, two were selected. He was one of the two. They called him in the office. They said, Dave, you know, his name is Dave. He's like, Dave, do you, do you know why we gave you that position? No. We did it because, well, the first guy that got it was the top salesperson. So we gave it to him because he was getting results. You, however, were not the top salesperson. <laughs> you know, you were good, but you weren't the great one. We, we picked you as our second candidate or the second person to get that promotion because you were the only one that asked us what you had to do to get it. And that impressed us so much that we gave you that, the second position. That, that position got him an extra two to 4,000 a month of income. Does that make a difference in his life? Heck yeah. That three-week investment paid off. That's the key. Like if you're always focused on how do I show up to serve people? How do I solve problems and give them what they want? You'll never want yourself. Do that first, then the money will follow. And, and it doesn't matter. I don't care if you pack it away in a, in a piggy bank. I don't care if you put it in the bank, it, or the actual bank. It doesn't matter. Like if you start doing stuff like that to find ways to free up money and to get your money, you know, get more income coming in, that's going to resolve a lot of the problems that at least have money to work with. That's advice number one. Advice number two I would give is get your money out of prison. This is not going to be a popular, top, uh, popular thing, but it's, it's true. Get your money out of prison. The problem is that most financial really institutions are who train financial advisors. Those financial advisors also train you. Also, what you'll notice is that even the, the pundits out there, right, the experts, so to speak, they're also usually hired by these financial institutions or they happen to advertise on their channels. And, you know, I'm talking about all the different news stations. You'll see that these financial stations will often have, you know, Fidelity, The Rock, Prudential. You know, they'll always have these companies promoting and doing stuff. So even a guy like me, it's kind of hard to get me on their show. Why? Because I basically say your stuff sucks. Mm. <laughs> so, and they're paying them millions of dollars to advertise for them. They don't want to create that conflict of interest. So you won't get real financial education that actually works. Well, that, that's the big thing right there I tell you to do is that, Number one, get your money out of prison. Get your money away from putting it into 401ks because the thing is they trap your money in there. Even when you need it, you can't get it. Not without taking a loan and paying interest for your own money. 
or two, putting your money in equity in your house, trying to pay down your house fast. That's another thing that see, I'll tell you, I would have weathered the last recession much better had I not followed Dave Ramsey's advice of trying to pay off my house. Because I actually, believe it or not, used to be a Dave Ramsey fan, took that advice to heart, started trying to pay extra principal into my house because I thought, well, worst case scenario, I can always just cash out refinance if I need the money. Well, when the recession hit, those conditions didn't work anymore because banks started saying, we don't want to do any more cash out refinances. And when they started locking things up, they stopped lending money. That is what caused the real estate market to tank. Yeah, it was overinflated. Yeah, there was appraisal fraud going on. It would have come down a little bit, but it came down severely and hurt more people because of that one reason, that banks stopped moving money. When money stops moving, when the credit dries up, that's when the economy collapses. That's one thing that's different this time around to kind of lead in your second question. But to finish off this point is that don't put your money in prison. Don't lock it up where you can't get to it. If I had been able to get my money out, if I would not have paid all those extra payments to my mortgage, because you know, even if you have it paid off, you don't have to fire sell it. And I did try to sell it eventually, but with everything going on crazy in the market, it would have been better off if I had that cash available to keep me in my house longer to weather that storm and then sell it later if I needed to get the cash out later. That would have been the smarter thing to do, but I didn't. I put my money in prison. I did the very thing that I shouldn't have done. That's what cost me everything. Now, in um, your next question about real yes. estate market today, mm -hmm. there, there is a difference. Um, it's not like last time, but there, you're right. I mean, the, the glory days of the 2020, 2021, where they pumped so much money in the market that it was the everything bubble that we created. Everything went up. Stock market went up too high. Bitcoin went up too high. Everything went up too high because there was just too much money going around. Crazy to think that there's still money going around. The feds are still putting a ton of money into our system. There's a lot of available credit. It's a little bit different than the last recession where they dried up that credit. It's still being pumped around right now. There's still plenty of money in the system. So that's why you haven't seen the stock market crash completely yet. And real estate could crash. Here's the thing I learned from last recession as well. Don't buy real estate banking on appreciation. Don't bank that the values will go up and that's the only way you make money. That's what I used to think. Even as a financial advisor, I, I used to tell people all the time, don't put money in real estate because, of course, I don't get paid commissions if you put money in real estate. If you really ask financial advisors, that's the number one reason. They don't want you to put money in real estate because they don't get paid on it, right? They get paid on selling you mutual funds and insurances. That's it. Well, real estate, the thing with real estate is I used to think it only went up 3% a year on average. It's just keeping up with inflation. But the stock market does 10 12% a year. First off, the SP 500 has only actually returned an average, an actual yield, averaging 7.7% for the last 30 years. Secondly, real estate, the real money in real estate isn't by just buying it in cash and letting it appreciate at 3% a year. Real estate actually is best because the thing you can do with it is create a higher income from it. For example, there are properties right now in our network that we have, um, we call them turnkey real estate providers. Uh, turnkey real estate, just so you know what that is, it's rental real estate, but you're not buying it in your backyard. By the way, if you're buying anything in the western half of the United States, it sucks. Don't do it. Okay. Um, the eastern half are much, much better, especially the mid Midwest to the southeast have much better opportunities. But a turnkey company, what they do is they help you find the property. They help you get the financing for it with a mortgage or whatever you might need for it. And then three, they also property manage it for you. So you don't, aren't the property manager. That's one mistake I made in the last recession. I tried to be my own property manager. It was horrible. Mm. I don't property manage anything, but there's still real estate turnkey providers that help you find the property, get the financing for it. And yet you can still produce at least a seven, eight, or even 10 plus percent, what they call a cash on cash return. What that means is, say you put $40,000 down on a property. If you make 10%, that means you make a net profit after you've paid all your expenses of $4,000 a year. That doesn't include appreciation. That doesn't include that you will probably won't pay any taxes on that money because you get to depreciate the property. And that doesn't include the fact that if you have a mortgage on it, that, you're, that your renters are paying down the mortgage for you, which wasn't included in that 4,000 bucks. So give you an example, you know, I bought a property just a little under, you know, about four and a half years ago, um, bought it in Memphis, Tennessee. The down payment with closing costs was $32,000. Now um, I'm making about $500 a month net profit on that property currently. So I'm making about $6,000 a year off that $32,000. That's still 
about an 18% cash on cash return. But that's not where all of my money's been made. I've also the fact that they've paid down my mortgage for me. Now my mortgage has more, you know, several thousand more of equity. Of course, the property's appreciated, even with it correcting and stuff, we still made a lot more money there. Even not counting all the tax benefits, the fact that I haven't paid any taxes on these properties because we're able to negate that with depreciation, I've still made about a 300% rate of return in four and a half years. If I had put that same money in the S&P 500, I would have made about a 40% rate of return. So, you know, you can do the comparison. It's hard to beat real assets, you know? Um, that's the difference. So again, if I were to put 40,000 into a stock market, you know, even just, or even that 32,000, let's just use that number. Just so you, so you know, like there's, there's this thing out there, you might've heard it before, Paul, where people talk about the whole 4% rule. You mm -hmm. heard about that where they say, whatever you have in your mutual funds, you can live on 4% a year and not run out of money. Well, that's been, that's pretty much been shot to death. Mm -hmm. um, if there's financial companies that came out saying, no, that's, that's wrong. That's too high of a number. It should be closer to 3%. And that's if you're at retirement age. If you want to retire early, it's more like 2% you should take out. So think about it. Even if I had 32,000 and it grew 40%. So let's just say that it got up to about $46,000. All right, yes. Now I can pull off cash off that. Well, 3% of about $46,000, that means I'm really only pulling out about, you know, well, was that 1,300 bucks a month? Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. $1,300 a month I'm pulling out can't live on 1300 a month versus now I'm making, sorry, not 1300 a month. Sorry. That's 1300 per year. Per year. Okay. Per year. Yes. Sorry. I would love 1300 a month off that. Yes. No, 1300 <laughs> per year, 1300 per year. And then you have to pay taxes on that money. Right? So really you might walk away with a thousand bucks per year versus I'm making almost 500 bucks a month tax free on that. That's about $6,000 a year or pretty close to $6,000 a year. I'm netting on my properties. It's a very different lifestyle. Um, give me an example. I had a, a, a colonel in California. He was one of the top ranking colonels, just retired from the military. Um, he was on my show actually recently. He's on, been on twice. Once when he first started to work with us, and then he came on again uh, about uh, seven, eight months later. And uh, in his case, he had a million dollars saved in his retirement account. He max funded his 401k, got the match. He actually did better than the average American in that 401k because right before Y2K, what did he do? He said, you know what? I think things are going to start going down. I'm going to pull my money out of the stock market. And he put it in cash. And then it went up. You know, then, of course, the market tanked, but he didn't lose any money. Mm -hmm. And then he put it back in the market when it was low. So he got in at a good price. And then right before 2007, he moved his money out of ca into cash again, saved him from losing money. So he did not lose money in the last two recessions. But he only had a million dollars after doing everything for decades. 60 years old, he said, wait a minute, Chris, I just did the math. A million dollars, if I live on 3%, is only 30000 a year. Who in California can live on 30000 a year, especially because I'm going to get taxed. I'm probably going to take home less than 2000 a year or less than 2000 a month from this money, right? I said, you're right. That sucks. You're a, million, you're a broke millionaire. You live below the poverty line as a millionaire in that kind of income stream. So what do we do? We end up doing some other stuff. We end up doing, for example, he bought some properties, got like a duplex, for example, that we bought, had a really good return on that, a good, solid, stable return there. Uh, he also got some money and bought some an ownership interest in some apartment buildings. So mm -hmm. he pulled money with other people called a syndication, pulled his money with other people, did that, put some money in some debt type of funds where, you know, a lot of times there'll be companies that will lend their money to other people and then get returns paid back because they're the creditor, right? And they get money there. So he's making money on that. And he even made money in the oil and gas space because we have one that's oil and gas backed by real estate, but you also get the royalties from the mineral rights. So he did all those things. His million dollars now produces $11,000 a month. So now he's not just living on less than $2,000 a month. Now he's at $11,000 a month. And now he just works part-time consulting from time to time, just having fun, doing whatever the heck he feels like. you know. And, and now whenever he makes money, it's all extra money. He can just go and reinvest and build that $11,000 a month to even higher than that. Um, so that's the big difference right there. So is the real estate market done? Um, in, if you just try to do the traditional methods, yeah, you might lose money in real estate. You know, if you try to do what everybody else does, don't follow the masses. The masses don't, don't do anything right. They're the ones that save in the 401ks because you've been taught to do that for years, yet nobody's retiring. Those people that buy, you know, the rental property next door and then make no money and then wondering why it's like such a long game to make money. And they sometimes accidentally still make money on them. No, 
the best way to do real estate is focus on cash flow. What income actually comes off of that? Even if values come down, you don't care if the values come down because as long as the income is still coming in, doesn't matter. You can wait it. You can wait it out forever. Versus the opposite being true, um, especially with people I have that come to us from the West Coast, whether it's Washington, Oregon, or California, or even Arizona, they buy properties and they're negative cash flow. They have negative. Mm profit, right? They have losses on those properties, but they hope that they grow in, in appreciation. Those are the people that gamble. Those are the people that get burned the most as we move into this next recession. Yeah, that's, that's fat. I mean, all great stuff to unpack. There were so many things I was kind of jotting down on my desk around this. Uh, I got, I, the audience knows I have my glass top desk, my expo marker. I was writing some of these things down and, and a lot of this stuff that you talked about, um, resonates. Um, I think personally for me, I, I guess I'm one of, I, I did pay off my mortgage. So mm -hmm. that's the first episode we ever did. I, I think it depends sometimes, uh, but I understand that, that you're locking in the, the, the money, right? Especially if things get tough. And I remember when, as I was paying off my mortgage during that, you know, when the economy was tanking, I had a home equity line that I, I never used, but they yanked it right back. That's right. They didn't want it out there and I never used it, but they're like, you can't have it anymore. So it's, it, you're right. It's very interesting how that goes and, and how that, how that works out um, in terms of once the credit tightens, they could pull it back on you. And, and thank God I didn't have any money out on it. I didn't borrow anything against it, right. For that line of credit. So, yeah. so I got lucky there. Um, well, I want to, well, let's, and can we can yeah. I go into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Let's talk about the, the, the nuances in this because there are people out there that'll say like paying off debt is a principle. It is not a principle. Principles never change. They're eternal, right? They, they work no matter what the economy is doing. Paying off a debt is a strategy. Strategies can change based on conditions. Uh, there's been many clients we've had where we actually said, you know what? Your best bet is to pay off that mortgage, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, free up the cash flow, and then we can do some other things with the money you do have, you know? Most people though, what's happening, like you said, it's kind of like with a mortgage, it's kind of like an auto loan. It's all or nothing because as you're paying it down, you're not freeing up any cash flow. So if also you get stuck and say you get down, you're just 10,000 away from paying that sucker off. But the payment is say $2,000 a month. You're like, I'm almost there. And then life hits you hard. And then you can't make that last payment. Who do you think the bank's going to foreclose on first? The person that only has $10,000 left in their mortgage? Well, the one that's still got maybe 300,000 left on their mortgage, mm. right? They're going to go after you faster, say, well, we can turn around and sell that property and make money off of it, right? Um, they, they, if you have, if you're fully leveraged or not even fully leveraged, even if you have 20% equity in it, but still the majority of it, it's still a loan. They're not going to foreclose on you as quickly. They're going to try to negotiate, work with you, try to change your payments, do whatever it can to make this work. Cause they don't want the property, especially if they have to sell it and make very little money on it, if anything at all. Um, but, um, but that's the thing again, paying off the mortgage just depends. It's situational. It, it really depends on that. It depends on the market conditions. Like for example, cashing out money right now doesn't, isn't producing as good of a return with the interest rates being higher, right? Where when they were like 3%, man, like you could make so much more money than the mortgage payment, especially if you bought real assets with it. Usually if people would want to use equity in their house, I wouldn't recommend gambling, especially that stock market and that kind of junk. Right. But you know, buy a real asset. It was like, if you're going to go into debt, quote unquote, right? Well, might as well go and put it, you know, from a property and put it into other properties. So at least you have equity still in all these places. Your, your net, in fact, your balance sheet doesn't change at all. You still have just as many assets and just as much debt as you had before, right? But now you're using it in a way that creates more leverage and, uh, and can make more returns and actually have income coming in, which is the thing that stresses out people the most, not the debt balance, it's the payment that stresses people out. It's how much income do I have in coming in versus my expenses, right? So again, it's always situational. There's times that it might make sense to pay it off. And there's times there aren't. Absolutely. And I think for me, anecdotally, just my own situation, I, thankful and grateful I was able to. Um, I think what you said earlier, um, what, what tends to happen is once that payment's gone, it frees up cash flow for other things, right? Which Definitely. I think is great. So I, I'm thankful and grateful I, I've been able to do some of that. And and real estate is definitely something I've been toying with forever, but only own my home. In fact, years ago when I was a kid, my father 
uh, I can't, I don't know if I ever told this story on the, you know, kind of in the part of the taping, but it, it's, it's very applicable here. My father was one of those guys that just kind of worked and worked and worked. And, you know, he didn't really have retirement plans and he, he didn't work for companies that provided that. And we used to go to this barber of all places. And he was a real estate guru. This guy owned a barbershop, cut hair for decades, but that's not where he made money. He made money in real estate. And I remember he got my father caught in the bug of, of looking at properties. And long story short, my father never bought a property, but he came close yeah. on a multifamily uh, that we looked at. And I think at the time, my, 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 we didn't get it. My father didn't buy it because, you know, it was like, you know, they were trying to negotiate and the barber and my father thought it was too high. Mm. And then, you know, two years later, you know, I'm at the barber shop, and he, my he never let me forget that mistake. The barber, he's oh, he goes, I should have, we should have, we should have bought it. It, it. That now you look at it, it's a material, right? So, mm -hmm. I think I've always myself been fascinated by the real estate market, and I've tried to kind of jump in and out. Or I shouldn't say jump in and out. I've tried to look at it a few times, and and for whatever reason, I just never have been able to get that right situation. Either I look at it through the lens that. It, if I buy it, it's going to cost me too much money. Mm. I feel like the market's overpriced um, in that particular area. But I think it goes back to what you said earlier. I, I think you have to go where you, you can't really be location specific, right? You said the Southeast. You said kind of the Midwest. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to buy in the Northeast where I live in New York, the <laughs> numbers don't typically don't work. Even no. when you go upstate New York, I've looked at a number of properties where I look at the math and I just can't get over how you know crazy it is and then uh, we had a buddy of mine from college on the show i guess maybe about a year ago and he's investing heavily into oklahoma and florida and yeah. so i i think i think it's along the lines of what you've been talking about is kind of making sure you're investing in the right spot i do want to i do want to ask a question that's top of mind it's kind of unrelated we talked about rich dad poor dad we talked a little bit about dave ramsey do you have any specific, quote unquote, financial personalities that you admire like, or follow? I don't know if I'm asking the question right, but do you have any personalities that you think or they all have kind of pluses and minuses and you have to kind of take their knowledge and kind of tailor it for what you're trying to do? Yeah, I would, I would say it's more the latter because um, you can learn something from every, anybody. I mean, Susie Orman, I've ripped on Susie Orman several times, just like I've ripped on. Dave Ramsey from time to time, but there's been times I also said, Hey, here's where I agree with him. Right. And, uh, same thing with, with Robert Kiyosaki. Um, I love the premise. Um, you know, he, he's definitely gotten a little bit crazier in the last, uh, few years. Uh, there's, there's definitely some things. If you ever listen to this podcast, you think, okay, this guy, he's uh, wearing some tinfoil hats lately, you know, and, and I'm, and I'm one of those guys that I actually believe some of these conspiracies, you know, like some of the conspiracy that became true. I was like, called it, you know, but you know, it, you just, you just got to take everything with a grain of salt. I mean, even I had a guy on my show and I had read his book and talked about his book forever and finally decided, Hey, I should probably bring him on my podcast. Uh, a guy named Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Um, he's a, he's actually awesome. Uh, he, he, uh, he wrote a book called thou shall prosper has a very unique perspective on, well, not even a unique perspective, but he more says, here's why the Jewish Jewish perspective, why it's led to wealth over literally thousands of years in, in this culture, you know? And so it's very fascinating to kind of see here's what's led up to that Jewish religion that really helped them to become really the, some of the wealthiest people in the world, bankers and everything else over time. Um, so there's, there's lots of people you can really get stuff from, but, uh, I, I tend to stay more in the lane of those that really been there, done that and doing it today, you know, mm -hmm. um, that's, those are the people that I like to do. And, and so, you know, do I really follow a specific personality? Not really, but, um, but, but there's often things I can glean from a lot of people, you know, no matter which angle they're coming from. That's often you find the two extremes and then the truth is usually right in the middle, isn't it? Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And I think I might've heard the rabbi on the Dave Ramsey show, right? I think years yeah. ago, I think he might've interviewed, uh, rabbi lap, La rabbi Lappin, right? I think mm -hmm. I might've heard that name before. So that's pretty cool. Um, I'm not as familiar with his philosophies, but uh, I know I've heard the name uh, a few times. Um, I want to kind of ask another question around getting started, 
right? And and maybe not all the details, but you know, you know, how does one create multiple streams of passive income now? And what are what are those immediate steps? Like uh, the 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 thing you should do tomorrow to kind of get that started. What what would you what would you tell someone to kind of try to get that started? It's really assess what you have as as assets, right? Um, I mentioned one asset earlier, which was how can you take your own talents and your own abilities and experiences, and how can you monetize that? Even whether it's within your own job, within your business, for some people it might be a side hustle. You know, you might have something that could actually work. You know, I'll give you an example. I mean, side hustles I think are a great way. If you're if you're an employee right now and you don't have all the tax breaks, having a side hustle can actually be amazing. One, it's not only just a stream of income, but two, it gets you to write off things on your taxes you wouldn't normally be able to write off. Um, you know, and you know, like for example, um, you know, there's a time where I remember. Uh, you know, some people were, this is probably about 2014. I had, I was in a Facebook group and a lot of people that were dealing with like more of the spiritual part of money. They wanted to talk about wealth from a spiritual standpoint. And I couldn't tell you how many times people said, I wish I could figure out how to make money from my passions, right? Or how I can make money from my purpose. And, and I, I, I kind of replied there. I was like, well, it's pretty dang easy. In fact, that's probably the best way to make money is <laughs> from your passions, your strengths and your purpose. And because they asked it so many times, I, I kind of got a clue, right? You have to really listen for problems. So I took that and said, well, how many of you would be interested? Because I actually have an education thing. You know, I actually have experience in this. Um, had to brush off the dust of some of the old stuff. But I said, hey, I can do a, a four-day, you know, basically training on how you can actually find your strengths, your talents, and your passions and turn that into money. Who would be interested? And several people said, yay, you know, like on Facebook, which like doesn't mean money. Um, but I did say, I was like, okay, great. Well, I'm going to charge 50 bucks per person, 20 people only we will cap it at that. Next thing I know, a few days later, thousand bucks, you know, and I went and I recorded it, you know, helped saved it for them, but I also recorded it to then sell later for other stuff. And I even uploaded it to now like to, our, you know, one of our programs called the wealth, Accelerator Academy. That's part of that. So find ways that you can generate more income. I think is huge when you're trying to start, right? Um, even if it's a side hustle. Other, so if you don't have money, the best way to do that is usually through your own time and your own talents, right? It can also be relationships. Relationship capital is another capital that most people don't realize. So I talked about intellectual capital of monetizing that through a side hustle. Relationship capital is another way. Uh, one thing I learned that I, it was kind of accidental the first time I was able to become financially independent was uh, I was talking with one of my mentors. He was a millionaire and he was asking me, he said, Chris, if money were no issue, what would you spend your time doing? He's like, would you keep being a mortgage broker? Because I quit being a financial advisor, but I was still doing mortgages. Because I thought, hey, at least I can feel more at peace with that. Um, he said, would you be a mortgage broker? I said, well, I love teaching people about what kind of mortgage options to get. But I hate it when it comes down to the paperwork and the underwriting. And people call them, you know, I tell them it's going to be three weeks probably before this loan's done. And then they call me 24 hours later. Is it done yet? It drove me nuts. He said, Chris, why don't you find somebody who does like doing that? I said, there's nobody that likes that. Who, who, what kind of nerd would like doing that stuff? Trust me, Chris, there are plenty of people that like that. So I went back to the mortgage broker. I said, hey, is there somebody that fits this description? They said, yeah, that's Clark. Hands down, use Clark. So I went to Clark. I said, Clark, if I get people to you that are already ready to do a mortgage, but you need to do all the work, would you pay me 50% split for that? Yes. Great. So I would spend maybe a half hour or so with people, educating them like what they can do with their mortgage to help save money. And then I, they'd say, great, where do I go to get the mortgage? I said, talk to Clark. They went to talk to Clark. And of course, I was mortgage licensed, so it worked legally, right? Um, next thing I know, a month or two later, I'm getting paid 1000 2000 bucks. I said, man, that was way easier. That's like, that's way better than, you know, Napoleon Dynamite's. That's like a dollar an hour. Gosh, that was like $1,000 <laughs> an hour. Yeah, you know, it was awesome. And, and, and I took that, and I applied it to other things. I said, you know what? People keep asking me, like, I, I would start thinking, what do people keep asking for, right? Again, coming back to how do you provide value and solutions? And I'd hear people say, you know, at the time when I was in my 20s, people getting married, buying that engagement ring. I'd say, hey, here's this wholesale jeweler in Salt Lake City. You'll save, literally, you'll pay a third of the price that you'll pay for these normal jewelers. They're like, awesome. Can I have their card? Yeah, here's their card. And I write my name on the back. And, they, and if they gave it to the person, that wholesale jeweler, 
they would say, oh, cool. Well, that we'll pay a 5% kickback to Chris Miles, right? And so mm. I would get paid 5% from that. And I did that with a few other businesses and I would start making a few thousand a month, just a couple hours a week. I was literally living the four hour work week before Tim Ferriss wrote his book. It was awesome. Um, so if you don't have money, do something like that. Leverage either your intellect, your mental capital, or your relationship capital in a way that helps, again, provide solutions. You don't have to be the do-it-yourselfer. You don't have to do it all. Now, if you do have money, that's even easier. That's where you can mm -hmm. do the, a lot of those strategies we talked about, like with investments, you know, things that actually do produce passive income. Great. Use that. See where you can get your money out of prison. You know, get, if it's sitting in savings doing nothing, how do we turn that into actual passive income? That's where you can do a variety of forms of investing that go far beyond mutual funds and don't have all the extra risk that you get with the volatility of the stock market. You can get a lot less volatility, a lot more certainty. Doesn't mean it's risk-free, a lot more certainty and a lot more better track record than what the stock market's ever given us. And, uh, and there's so many answers there. Yeah, no, I, I can see why they call you the anti-financial advisor. Um, you could probably still do advisory pretty well with, through that lens of, of not the atypical, you know, mutual funds, like you said, and, and really yeah. focusing on, I love the creativity and thinking outside the box, probably an overused term on how to generate that income. I never really thought about that before. Some of these little nuances that you're talking about, how do you streamline it? How do you take the best talents you have, maybe pair them up with somebody else who has the best talents, like the mortgage example, right? Someone's great at paperwork. You're great at explaining. Let's work together and make this work. Um, the other thing I want to ask about, we talked about the incomes. I got a couple of questions before I let you go. What are the seven secrets to freeing up cash today? I think we might have touched upon a few of them, but can you tell us those seven secrets and how does one find money you didn't know was even there? Yeah, we definitely flirted with a few of them for sure. Yes. Right. Uh, the first one always is track your money, right? Now, this is not living on a budget. Budget is really like a step two in this kind of process here. Um, really tracking your money. I, I like using tools like Mint. You know, Mint's been a great one I've used. It's free. Um, it ties to your bank accounts, but don't worry. You know, generally, uh, there's no guarantees in the world, but um, they're generally pretty safe, you know, with, with your information because you can't access money from it, right? You can just see balances through it. But, you know, you could track your money and expenses going out, income coming in. I recommend you track both. One thing I've learned is that in the scarcity world, there's really three types of, of money paradigms. There's the spender, the saver, and the steward. The spender, those are the ones that get ripped on all the time on the, on the, you know, on the typical finance shows, right? Um, it's interesting to, to note that the majority of the world are, are actually savers. There are more mm. people actually that are in the saver mentality than the spender mentality. Spenders are actually the minority. Despite popular belief, I know, because everybody say, oh, I'm one of the few of the proud savers. Like, no, you're not. 52% um, of people have 401ks that they're saving into that are eligible to save into 401ks. That includes people like myself, who's the 48% that says, no, 401ks suck. Just because I'm eligible doesn't mean I'm going to do it, right? So there's people like me out there that don't save in 401ks, but the majority of people actually do. Um, now, spenders, we already know. It's easy come, easy go. They blow the money, right? Those are the people that should never have debt. They should never try to use their mortgage to go and invest because they'll blow it. They'll screw it up. Savers are also in scarcity because savers, you can never pay off your debt enough. They're still freaked out about that and they can never save enough. There's never a definite number they can stop at. Even when they get to the number that was their goal, they get there and they say, ah, it's just not enough. I don't feel like I have enough. If you ever feel like you don't have enough, you're in scarcity and you can never have financial freedom in scarcity because fear drives away freedom. And so the steward is in the middle. The steward says they take the best of spender and a saver and put it into one person. Because the good thing with spenders, at least they're willing to use money. They just don't use it wisely. But savers, they're a little bit wiser, but they, they tend to just hoard money, right? So if you can be wise with it and use your money in a way that helps you increase your ability to make more money or to even just improve lives, that is a good investment. You know, you think about in the Bible, right? We talk about our friend Dave Ramsey, he loves the Bible. Well, so do I. Well, in the Bible, there's the story of the parable of the talents. Interesting to note, all three of those servants that were given money by their master were in debt to their master. They were using debt money. Two of them went and doubled the money that they were given. And when they brought it back to their master, he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
I made you a, a steward over a few things. Now I'll make you a master over everything or over many. Great. The one that had one talent, he buried it. He still paid his debt back. He became debt-free later, but he didn't do anything with it. That was the one that was cast out. He was not a wise steward. Stewards look to increase their stewardship. They look to make it better. They look to magnify the blessings that they have. They look to improve upon. They beautify things. They want to make things better. In the financial sense, that's the same thing too, is that you want to make it better. People that chart tracking their money, they look at both sides of the equation. Spenders ignore the expenses. They ignore what they're spending because it freaks them out, but they'll focus on their income because they got to keep making money. They got to keep hustling. Savers hyper-focus on the expenses, but really don't worry about the income side. You need both. Track both. Eliminate unproductive or even destructive expenses, right? Get rid of those things, but don't get so cheap that you end up becoming counterproductive, right? Don't get so cheap that you end up buying the worst foods that you can't even function health-wise and you run up your medical bills, right? I'll give you an example. I used to listen, listen to Dave Ramsey's show all the time, and I remember there was one woman that called in, and she was depressed. She said, Dave, I'm really, I'm, I'm really discouraged right now because I've just saved you know, so much. Like I've paid off, I've paid off all my debt, but $61,000 of my mortgage and in the last, you know, two years. And I'm thinking, well, that sounds pretty awesome. I think she paid off $90,000 in two years and she's depressed, right? Hmm. I've paid off, you know, there's still 61,000 left on my house. Um, I've been trying to, you know, save, I've been coupon, coupon clipping. Heck, uh, I've even been living on rice and beans every day for the last two years. And Dave's like, whoa, 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 what? Would you say I've been living on rice and beans? You you say live on rice and beans. I've been doing that for the last two years, and he starts laughing at her. Like that's ridiculous. You don't live on rice and beans. Like you got to buy some lettuce and tomatoes. That's that's dumb. That's stupid. Mm. And then it's dead air silence. And I thought she had hung up. And then in a few a few seconds later, she said, "Oh, well, I did." Wow. <laughs> And that's, that's the thing. That's, that's what happens with the saver mentality. You go into scarcity. You get it. You just take it too far sometimes, right? Um, again, a steward. It's not about that that saver hoarding mentality. It's really about how to look at everything. And and so I kind of went long on that one. That one little point, which is so simple, but it's un, it's really important to understand those perspectives because you have to ask yourself, where do I sit? You know, do I sit more on the spender side? Is it easy come, easy go? Am I just somebody who blows money? Am I on the saver side where I probably love financial advisor's advice because it supports what I already believe, right? Or am I more of a steward? Am I willing to say, what can, is the best use of this money right now? What can I do to improve my life and the lives of those around me? That's what a steward does. And so that's kind of where, if you have that perspective, then it's easy to lead into other things like paying off debt. Then we say, hey, what debts are most efficient to pay off? Which ones take the, the biggest chunk out? So that's one of the other things in that seven secrets. Um, is debt. So the cash flow index, I'll give you that equation for you. I'll just give you guys that secret right there. Um, the cash flow index, you take the balance of the loan and you divide it by the minimum monthly payment and you'll get a number. That's the cash flow index. So for example, let's just say you have two different types of loans. One's a credit card, one's a car loan. Both are $10,000 a piece. The car loan is $10,000 with a $500 a month payment at 4% interest. The credit card is $10,000 with a $200 a month payment at 19% interest. Now, naturally, Paul, which one do you think Dave will tell you to pay off? Dave Ramsey. Uh, uh, high, yeah, highest. Uh, no, uh, balance smallest to pay off your debt smallest to largest. That's okay. what I remember. Well, they're both 10,000. So then what's the next uh -oh. one you go with? Yeah, I guess interest rate, right? Yeah. You'd probably yeah. say interest pay rate. Off the credit card, right? Like, in fact, if you want to keep it, freeze in a block of ice, never use again, right? You know, that right. kind of thing, right. or shred it, right. you know, cut it up. You Cut know, it up. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, you know, and so, yeah, he'll say pay off the credit it. card. Well, and that's true from that standpoint, right? if you're only looking at interest, but I'm going to say this, and this is going to challenge a lot of people's belief is ignore the interest rate. The interest rate is actually not the thing that's hurting you right now. It's that monthly payment. Because what I've learned is your life is never meant to be lived in a calculator. Your life doesn't work that way. Your life is just as much financial on numbers on a spreadsheet as it is emotional. The thing that actually will protect you more is paying off the one that has that lowest cash flow index. Well, in this case, take ten thousand divided by that two hundred dollar a month credit card. That's a fifty. But if you take that ten thousand dollars divided by the five hundred dollar a month payment on the car loan, it's a twenty. 
I tell people pay off that car. If all you have was 10,000 bucks, pay off the car, free up that 500 a month, which gives you options because options give you freedom. I have this shirt that says cash flow equals freedom, right? I say that because when you free up $500 a month, now you have more room to breathe. Now you have more options. And if you have that 500 a month, you can always apply it to that credit card and you'll still pay it off within a year anyways. That interest rate is negligible because you paid off so quickly because you're not extending it. It's not like a 30 year mortgage, right? You're not extending it forever. It's literally like gonna be a matter of months. You don't really pay that much more in interest than you would have on the car loan. So if you do that, you free it up, but here's what it does too. It protects you because the truth is, as the insurance commercials might say, life comes at you fast. You know, things might happen unexpectedly. There might be a situation where expenses go up and you're in trouble. You're in a cash crunch, mm -hmm. right? And even if you have some savings, what if that's chronic? What if it's something you get laid off and you need every dollar you have? You would much rather be paying $200 a month than $500 a month because you're just trying to aim for the interest rate. That's my point there is that when it comes to real life, not just in a calculator, when it comes to real life, uh, and by the way, on a calculator, it actually ends up being better my way anyways. <laughs> um, yeah. That's one thing that shocked me. I used to have a calculator. Again, when I was a Dave Ramsey fan, I was a financial advisor. I created, you know, I actually helped create a spreadsheet to show off which debts to pay off. And it took forever in Excel. It would take, you know, because, you know, computers sucked back then 20 yeah. years ago. And so it take forever. It would jumble around all the different options. It would say, here's the debts to pay off in which months. And it blew my mind that sometimes it would be 0% credit cards that pay off first. Or other times I might say, instead, don't pay off the credit card, just paid off minimum payment or the same payment, not minimum payment, but the same payment, just paid off the normal schedule after 21 months. In the meantime, you're paying off your car loan first. You put the extra money on that. So there's different nuances, but I found the one that created the best odds of success, just in case something goes wrong while you're trying to make it mm -hmm. work, is go for that lowest cash flow index. And then you do that debt snowball method. Then you go for the next lowest one, right? The one that's just up from that lowest one. And then you just keep going up. Usually if it's 40 or under, you pretty much want to get rid of those. If it's mm -hmm. over 40, maybe not as much. Maybe it's a refinance situation. Uh, mortgages, for example, I like it when they're rated about a 200 index. So if it's a $300,000 mortgage, you want that payment, not including tax and insurance, to be about 1500 a month. So uh, it's cool. There's lots of things you could do with that as well. No, that's great. I'm glad I asked that question. And I know I want to ask you two more questions and they're mm -hmm. sort of unrelated to, and I appreciate all this feedback. I think the steward spender saver, uh, that was, was like a light bulb moment. It was like, wow. Like I'm, I'm looking at myself like, where do I sit on that spectrum? So that's probably for another episode, but I'm trying to figure out, and you, you had said some very interesting things there. So I want to definitely drill into that on my own. Um, before we started, hit the record button. We talked a little bit, and and you talked about um, your experience as a world championship ballroom <laughs> dancer, right? So, how yeah. do you tie that experience to what you do today? Like, how does it tie back to all of this? Can you can you make some ties back to? Has that experience helped you be a uh, in, in your career as it is today? Oh, definitely. Uh, you know. It's funny because when I started ballroom dancing, I started in college. So I was a late beginner, I guess you could say, right? I only did it because I needed a one credit class. And I was like, well, I need a PE or some kind of class like that that's in college there to be full time. And it was back in the days. Remember when you used to have printer paper that you go, you know, like you tear yep. off the stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dot matrix. Dot yes. matrix, exactly, right? So, you know, when I went to, you know, college back in the 90s, that's what they had. They didn't have internet, you know, and that kind of stuff yet. Well, I remember I was looking for that class. I couldn't figure out what it was going to be. And then I heard this girl tell this guy, there's lots of girls in this class. You should do it. And so I kind of creepishly stalker-like kind of went behind <laughs> to figure out what she was talking about. It was a social dance class. So I joined that class, even got some of my roommates to do it with me. Um, they all had more dance experience than I did. I, I was so bad that girls would actually try to skip me in line to go to the next guy. So <laughs> I was not good, but I had fun. And because I had fun, I took another semester and got a little bit better, even got fourth place in the competition and uh, started dancing on like dance teams and stuff. And so after two years, I actually became one of the top dancers. And then I went to the next university I went to was in Utah. There's two schools that were the world champions and they would alternate on purpose so they could both be world champions every other year. That was between BYU and Utah Valley University, which Utah Valley University won the Mirrorball Trophy with Dancing with the Stars. Well, I, I went to Utah Valley University. And I went there and was on their, uh, their ballroom dance team, their world championship team and everything. And, and here's what interesting I learned. As I went to that school, 
I worked hard because I had so much fun. I, I practiced a lot. I knew a lot of the steps. So I not only worked harder, because you know how you hear people say all the time, it's not about working harder, it's about working what? Smarter. Smarter, no. right? Yes, yes. And I would, I would disagree with that because I was working harder and smarter. But then I had an instructor, a teacher that she saw me. She said, Chris, you're good, but you're not great. You could be so much better. In fact, if you actually just change one thing in your dancing, we could probably get you from getting in the semifinals or maybe finals, but finishing in a low position to maybe even winning the finals in some of these dances. And I was like, okay. She's like, because you know the steps, you're working hard at it, but you're not doing it right. That's the thing I learned that's applied to everything in business and with money and everything. It's not about working harder. It's not about how hard you work, as we mentioned earlier. It's not about working smarter. Just learning stuff from books and everything doesn't really mean anything if you end up learning the wrong things, right? You can be a student your whole life. Heck, I mean, how many times you heard those that don't, you know, those that don't do teach, right? I mean, there's mm. so many people that teach that just don't know how to make it work in their own lives. That's why it's about working right. And, uh, and by the way, I did actually do what she'd said, and I was starting to win competitions. Um, it's the same thing with business. It's the same thing with money. It's not about working harder or smarter. It's about working right. When you're doing the right things, applying the right principles, those core principles that really work, everything else falls into place. Oh, I love it. Yeah, that's great. And, and the last question I have for you um, is, I always kind of ask this, but definitely would be applicable here. How do you balance being a dad large family, uh, your businesses, books, podcasts. How do you, how do you find time to kind of, to make it all work? And, and, and that's why I'd love to kind of hear your, you know, one or two takeaways on that, because I'm, I'm always asking guests that because I feel sometimes I'm trying to do it all and, and do it all kind of not great if that's uh -huh. the right term, you know? So what do you, what are some of your, uh, secrets to, 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 to balancing this all out? It's tough to do it all right. I'll tell you that much. I mean, I've got, you know, six kids of my own, plus my wife has two kids. We have a blended family. So it's like the Brady Bunch, but we didn't have enough room for Alice, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I get it. Um, you know, what I, it's, I think really the big thing is your priorities, right? Like make sure you have your priorities straight. I mean, and there's different times that your priorities will shift. I mean, sometimes you might have to throw this off. The whole balanced life thing, it's, it's, it's a really tough game to play because, life experience doesn't show balance, right? There's always chaos and control fighting with each other all the time. That's just natural laws of the universe. And so it's a matter of just trying to find harmony in all of this. Because sometimes you might have to go more the work route. You might have to put more focus there. But again, make sure that, you know, I believe that family should come first. And actually, I, I, I lie, okay? Or I'm not lying, but I'm wrong on that one. Actually, I really believe that... Um, you and your relationship with your God, whatever that looks like, that spirituality and that connection with yourself comes first. Um, if you lose yourself, and I'm guilty of this a lot, is where, you know, you need to hear me talking all the time about creating value and serving and solving problems. Well, you take that to the extreme and pretty soon you help everybody else but yourself, right? And that can go too far. So uh, like what I do, I do a morning ritual every day where um, I do what's kind of like Tony Robbins would call the hour of power. It doesn't have to be an hour. But I focus on the three E's, exercise, education, and enlightenment. So exercise, I try to get up because I can't, if I try to do enlightenment first thing in the morning, I'll fall asleep. So I do exercise, get my blood pumping, and that can look like whatever you want. Um, funny enough, I actually became a marathoner as a result of these uh, morning rituals. So now I'm like in the top 7% of marathoners in the world. Um, you know, education, you know, listen this right here. If you're listening to this, you know, maybe you're doing this while you're exercising or going for a walk, right? Perfect. Um, doing those kind of things, you know, anything to help build your mind, right? It can even be building mindset. Um, that also leads to enlightenment, right? How do you connect, you know, whether you're connecting spiritually, whether you're journal writing, you know, meditating, whatever that might be. Heck, some people might do yoga. They're like, cool, I get exercise and enlightenment all in one, you know, you can do all kinds of things, but doing that first, giving yourself that space. Heck, I'll even do Netflix and chill by myself, right? I'll just watch Netflix. I tune out from all the other people that want demands on my time. And I just tune it, you know, just give myself some me time, you know, that's important. But then of course my family comes second. I actually like to prioritize my wife first children after that, you know, because if you don't have that core as a couple together, it doesn't work. Um, so then I do that. And so then there's gotta be time for that. It doesn't mean I give more time to my family than I give my business. 
but I can't prioritize them more. I can still say, given the choice between these, if there's a situation where they need me, they need me I'm there. There's situations that my team and my, my employees need me. I can be there too, but just trying to find that harmony between them. So I don't believe that there's really a balance scenario. We just want to give equal time. And I don't believe the whole thing of, if you really prioritize something, you'll give them more time. That's not true. Like it depends on how that quality of time is being used. I'll give you one tip for the family though, with my kids. And I haven't done this as much on a weekly basis because there's now too many kids, but um, at least I'll try to do it monthly is try to have that alone time with your children. So like with my kids, when I only had about four or five kids, when it was early, you know, early on, I would actually do a little late night type of a routine. So we put the kids to bed early, you know, 7.30 or whatever it might be. But then one of those kids for that day of the week, we pick a specific day of the week, that kid would stay up late with us. It'd be a late night. It might only be half an hour, right? It wouldn't necessarily have to be super late. Just be an extra half hour. We have that time just alone to focus on them. And it's just like me and, and that kid, that son or that daughter. And so I'd say, hey, what do you want to do? Do you just want to talk? You know, do you want to read a book? You want to play a video game, you know, or whatever it might be. One time, you know, one of my daughters says, I want to get us a, a slushy. Horrible thing to do before bedtime. But I'm like, all right, let's go to 7-Eleven, get a slur, you know, get a Slurpee or whatever, right? And do that kind of thing. So, you know, those kind of things that, that they actually created memories. Even to this day, most of my kids are teenagers now. And to this day, they'll still recall those late nights that they've done or just the alone times that we've done where it's say, hey, let's just go out. You know, it might just be an afternoon activity now, you know, when we try to do it. That's brilliant. I, I got to say, I, I always, I overuse this lately, but I, this is definitely one of those podcasts I'm going to listen back to like twice at the gym, right? Like, so I could combine two of those E's together, right? Like, I think that'll be cool. Um, usually when we get to this part of the show, I go into kind of a summary recap and I've been jotting down things like crazy and there's more, but uh, starting with, you know, work optional, love that phrase, right? Uh, generating income, that promotion example, Right. Where you where someone stepped up, asked the question, if you don't ask, you don't get. I, I like the way you explained um, the overall nuances around real estate investing with that focus on the cash flow. I thought that was brilliant. Um, and then the spender, saver, steward, steward example. Uh, that's another one. Um, and, and now, you know, and then doing things right. Uh, I thought that was very interesting where, you know, it's not a matter of, you know, uh, how long you're doing it, right? You want to make sure you're tweaking it and doing that thing right. And that's applicable to everything, business, golf, whatever your thing is, right? Um, yeah. And then the three E's. I think that's that's very cool as well. And definitely this family advice. So I think with that, I want to let you have the final word. Where can people find you, Chris? I think they need to reach out to you and 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 check out your stuff and, and keep learning. So um, yeah, let us know where we can find you and any parting any parting words. Yeah, you can find me at moneyripples.com. You know, uh, that's money ripples, you know, an S on the ad. Moneyripples.com. We got lots of education, even that free ebook, Seven Secrets to Free Up Cash Today, right? You can find that on there. And you can also just search like YouTube or iTunes or anything like that for Money Ripples Podcast, where we give lots of great information. YouTube channel, we actually do extra bonus videos too. So definitely check out that Money Ripples channel. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Chris, I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion today, and I'm personally looking forward to the next one. Same here. Um, thanks, every very cool. Uh, thanks everyone for downloading our podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at financialdads at gmail.com or check us out on Facebook. Just go to financialdads.com. So, with that, this is Paul reminding you managing finances can be stressful, but that's why the financial dads are here to help you plan for success. Have a good one, everybody. Be well and thank you.